You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. This evening's scripture reading comes from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, before the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, we pray that you would indeed now speak that you would speak clearly through the preaching of your word and that we might hear it. We pray that you would fill your church and fill the world with your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. It is good to be back with you guys this week. Last weekend, I was down in the Gila National Forest for my first elk hunt. And let me tell you, the reason there is a reason why they call it hunting and not killing. Uh, I hiked around for two straight days, 15 to 18 miles over ridge and ridge and ridge and ridge and saw not one elk. Uh, This is now my third hunt, twice for turkey, and I am becoming more and more convinced that this is some elaborate ruse where people like tell you that there are actually wild animals out there that you can kill, and there there aren't any. I'm, I'm, I'm becoming more and more sure of it. Uh, It was a great time though, being out in the middle of nowhere. So many times I was thinking through what we thought through two weeks ago, earlier in chapter one of 1 Timothy, of just having time, like scheduled time of boredom and silence. We're a culture of distraction. So it was great being far enough out there to see like satellites pass over early in the morning before the sun came up. Uh, No text messages or emails. It was really great. Just hours upon hours to think and to pray with just an occasional whisper every now and then, once an hour or so to interrupt it. Planned weekends, silence and boredom are just an incredible, incredibly valuable thing. I was even encouraged by one of you this week who is now uh, planning daily time of silence and boredom. Time to just think without distraction. So good. Uh, so we took a week off last Sunday to reset our thinking perhaps as a church and as individuals on giving and generosity to introduce some new initiatives for our church, as well as some personal and church-wide goals that we'd like to see happen for the rest of this year. We have a couple of the Baptist Global Relief catalogs over here, uh, if you want to grab one on your way out. uh, Or also, if you got a weekly email this Thursday, there's a digital copy that you can just click right through. Uh, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, or if you think that a Lottie Moon is like something that happens on a rare occasion when the atmosphere is just right, like last month was a super moon and tonight is a Lottie Moon. Uh, if you're really confused by any of what I'm talking about, you should go back and listen to Clint's wonderful sermon from last Sunday. You can catch that on the the podcast, and we'll continue to talk about these things in our GCs throughout the rest of November. But now, something completely different. Uh, back to First Timothy. We saw two weeks ago that Paul has left Timothy in Ephesus to get some of the elders to stop teaching some 
bad doctrine that is leading people away from Christ. We're not exactly sure what it was that they were teaching, but they were evidently uh, teaching something to do with myths, with genealogies, rather than teaching a gospel that would lead people into loving God and to loving their neighbor from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and with a true faith. They were teaching things that, as we'll see later in the chapter, that were shipwrecking their own faith and were leading others into destruction as well. Paul is telling Timothy, make them stop. They desire to be teachers of the law, but they don't have any idea what they're talking about, even as confident as they sound. Now, as we're getting here into verse 11, in, or verse 8, in typical Paul fashion, he's going to just kind of spin off into this gospel digression. If you want to follow his argument, he really won't get back to what he was talking about in this first section, in 3 through 7. He won't get back to what he's talking about until verse 18 of chapter 1. It's like he started writing these things that these teachers are teaching the, the law all wrong, and then he's like, but just hang on just a minute, Timothy. Uh, I, I don't want you to hear me wrong. You might be thinking that because they're teaching the law that there's something wrong with the law. No, no, no. The law is good. And then in these verses that you heard Crystal just read, he's just going to reflect on a moment. Uh, reflect, reflect for a moment or two on what the law is for, if it is actually good. And then thinking about the law and its use, then this will throw him into a moment of just like personal reflection, which will just like start spiraling into this like tornado of praise that we'll see next week. And then he'll, after that, he'll just pause and then silently think, now where was I? Oh yes, verse 18. Here's what I want you to do, Timothy. So tonight, the law. My guess is that you didn't spend many hours this week Uh, perhaps in scheduled silence and boredom, just thinking about the Old Testament law. But in this particular time in Ephesus, and indeed around the entire Mediterranean world, where many Jewish people were becoming Christians, it was something that was thought about and taught on a ton. Many of the folks who were becoming the first Christians had been immersed in the law their entire lives. They had memorized many passages of it, or in fact, the entire thing. They had observed it their entire life. They had sought to obey it their entire life, going through processes and rituals to purify themselves when they were outside of the law. And so not only was there a page turning in their own lives, they had become Christians perhaps, and they're thinking, which parts of this is still for me today? Which parts of this should I still follow now that I am a Christian? But a page was turning on all of human history, on how God relates to humanity, In 2018, we are so clearly on this side of the page turn that it's kind of hard for us to imagine being like these folks who are like walking along on the spiral binding and like the page over their entire universe was turning. So tonight we're going to try to both put ourselves back into the year 64 AD or so, but also think through the implications of the law for us in 2018. And we'll do that by asking three questions. What is the law for? Who is the law for? And then what is the gospel for? What is the law for? Who is the law for? And what's the gospel for? So first of all, what is the law for? If you follow the Christian blogosphere, you no doubt saw when a, a, a few or several months ago when a prominent southern megachurch pastor said that we Christians need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. He said this in the context of preaching and evangelism, Today's culture might not 
understand much of the culture of the Old Testament, and it can become a stumbling block for them. Many folks cringed, but perhaps many were willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. He's perhaps talking about his own preaching ministry. Um, But in his new book, Fears Became Reality, when he suggests that the old covenant of the law is really about hate, and the new covenant is about love, that the old The Old Testament is about holiness, but the new is a better thing. It's about love. The law of Moses is bad, and the law of Christ is good, he teaches. In fact, he writes in his new book, the Ten Commandments have no authority over you, none. To be clear, thou shalt not obey the Ten Commandments, he writes. Without showing you about a hundred places in the New Testament that contradict his primary thesis, let me show you just one. Verse 8, 1 Timothy chapter 1. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. If used properly, Paul says, the law is good. If not, it's not. So how should we use it? What is the law for? How do we properly use it? Paul generally uses and teaches on the law in two different ways. The first way that Paul likes to teach and think about the law is that of a teacher or a guardian. The law was not only good for society and restraining evil, things like, hey everybody, culture will be better if you don't steal from one another or kill each other. That's a good thing, right? But also the law progressively matured the people of God in understanding God's will for their lives. It also prepared them for the coming of Christ. We see this in places like Galatians 3 and 4. But just like we don't need our elementary teachers, our elementary school teachers, or we don't need our like high school chemistry teachers any longer, and just as there were certainly rules that applied to our lives when we were third graders or when we were sophomores in high school, things like arrive at 745 or you will be tardy. Don't chew gum. Obey the dress code. These were uh, laws, we might say, for us then, for a particular time of our life. There are certain parts of the law, generally those of ceremonial or ritual purity, that are now obsolete. This part of the law was like a booster rocket. It, It gets the shuttle to where it needed to get outside of the atmosphere and into space, but then it falls off. But while there were time-specific laws for us in high school, there were also universal laws for us in high school, right? Like, don't pull the fire alarm. You should not do that when you are in 10th grade, and you should not do that today. Don't cuss out authorities. Don't stab people and the like, right? Like, these are, these are rules, yes, that you needed when you were in high school, but they are rules that are generally true once you are finished with high school. We follow these rules in third grade and in high school and into adulthood. So the law is a guardian or a teacher. It, its function was to mature God or God's people into trusting them, or into trusting him and marking them off as God's people. The law also, though, reveals God's character and his expectations for humanity, which gets us to Paul's second usage of the law. The condemning use of the law, or what Martin Luther calls the hammer, which crushes our self-righteousness. In Romans 7, Paul talks, that, talks about that without the law, he wouldn't have even realized that it would be a wrong thing to do to covet, to want someone else's possessions, 
and then hate them because they have it and he didn't. But what's even worse than that is that when he found out that it didn't honor God when he coveted, he actually then wanted to covet even more, such as the wickedness of the human heart. When I was like an eight or nine-year-old, my dentist, Dr. Jenkins, uh, outside of her office, there was this brick-paved courtyard. And the very first time I went, like eight or nine-year-old, we walked out, my sisters and my mother were walking ahead of me, and I saw that maybe one every out of every 10 bricks, there was a clearly stamped imprint in the book, or in the bricks that said, no spitting. I now know that that was, it was Texas, right? Uh, it was that it was to get these Texans to not spit their tobacco all over these pristinely, beautifully, beautiful red bricks. I didn't know that then as an eight or nine-year-old. I just thought, that, what an odd thing. Uh, to, this is the, apparently a no spitting zone. But while five seconds earlier, I had zero inclination to spit on the ground. I read that. I looked both ways. Made sure my, parent, my mom wasn't looking behind her. And what did I do? I spit on the ground, right? Uh, there's something within us that when we see a law, a rule challenging our autonomy, that we just want to push back against it. Wretched man that I am as an eight-year-old to spit on the ground. <laughs> Who will save me from this body of death? Paul says at the end of Romans 7 in thinking about the law. The law didn't cause disobedience in me. This rule on a brick did not cause me to be disobedient. But it revealed the death that was already there. And it slowly, over time, began revealing the death that was within me, my need for Christ, my need for his grace, his forgiveness, and new life. We all have expectations for ourselves, moral expectations. We have expectations that we imprint onto others, social and cultural expectations. And it's kind of crazy that we when we see a kind of failing in someone else that we very quickly condemn them. What a terrible person that was. Whereas when we do the exact same thing, we make all kinds of excuses why it was justifiable in that moment. If you, if you don't believe me, just think about uh, any time you're driving and you get really angry when someone does something that you think is morally offensive to you and you honk at them and you perhaps even shake your fist and you cuss at them, perhaps even in your heart, and then when you do the exact same thing to them, you get really angry when they get angry at you. When they honk at you, you're like, "What's? come on, man. Like, I'm just driving here, right? The law comes to even the playing field, to show us our failing, to show us our need, that we're not even meeting our own expectations for ourselves, much less God's. The law comes to burden us with a heavy weight, to make life very difficult so that we might look for and find the one to relieve us of the weight. So there are proper uses of the law as long as we are using it and thinking through it properly. It's certainly not bad. It's certainly not wicked. It is not teaching people to hate. And it is certainly not something that Moses and others were mistaken about in thinking that it was God's will for their life. It was God's will for their life. But it is not necessarily God's will for our life in its fullness today. To apply the fullness of the them-then laws to us today 
is to now misunderstand the law's purpose. Jesus fulfilled in himself the ceremonial and ritual aspects of the law. So as rhetorically awesome as it was in that West Wing episode, if you've seen it, as President Bartlett called out some Christian hypocrites for, asser- for affirming some binding effects of the law in their lives today while having no problem playing catch with a pigskin football. This was just a really basic misunderstanding of what the law is for. It has performed a function in its time. But now that we are through the atmosphere into space, the rocket booster has fulfilled its purpose, which is why circumcision and eating pork and shrimp and all of you heathens out there wearing your polyblend t-shirts are actually okay, right? The rocket booster has fallen off. We're not exactly sure what the Ephesian elders were teaching or how they were misusing the law here, but evidently Paul is confronting their improper use. The law is not bad as long as you're using it rightly. So what is the law for? It is for teaching us. It is even for condemning us. But which of those proper uses is Paul teaching and commending for us here in 1 Timothy 1? A a teaching use or a condemning gospel hammer use? I think the latter, which now gets us to who is the law for? Who is the law for? In a word, everyone. All of us. If you've read through the rest of this letter, you know that 1 Timothy 2.4 is coming. That God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And so the law is given to convict and expose our spiritual death. That all people have the same need for life. So in verse 8 he says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this. That the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. One reason I know that Paul himself would disagree with this pastor who said that the law and the Ten Commandments are are a bad thing is because in Ephesians 6, Paul directly quotes the Fifth Commandment of honoring your father and mother. But I hope to show you here that Paul is walking through the Ten Commandments in what we just read. A little less clearly here in our passage, but Paul quickly perhaps sums up the first through fourth commandments, and then he gives extreme examples of commandments five through nine. Let's look. Verse nine, he says, the law is not given for the just, those who live morally upright and perfect lives, but the law is given for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners. In other words, The law is given for those who worship and obey other gods than God. Perhaps those who break the first and second commandments. All of us, certainly the Ephesians who worshipped all kinds of other gods, most notably in that city in Ephesus, the the Greek goddess Artemis, her, her Roman name Diana, we'll think more about her as we go, but just as much us worshiping and obeying the other gods in our lives of success and approval, of comfort and autonomy, lawlessly, disobediently, sinfully exchanging the right worship of God for the wrong worship of false gods. The law was given for the unholy and profane. Perhaps these are allusions to those who would take the Lord's name in vain 
without careful speech, flippantly talking about God as if he's no more than an imaginary figure or a stuffed animal or something. But while these illusions are just that, these are illusions, and therefore a bit more difficult to spot, the next list is not. Let's read through these extreme examples that Paul lays out. We'll come back for some observations. He says, the law is given for those who strike their fathers and mothers, those who break the fifth commandment of not honoring their fathers and mothers. For murderers, those who break the sixth commandment. It's given for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, those who break the seventh commandment of not committing adultery. The law is given for enslavers, those who break the eighth commandment of not stealing. And it is given for liars and perjurers, those who break the ninth commandment of not bearing false witness. Now, Paul is not like sitting up in his like second floor church office. He's like looking out the window and just like watching the sinners walk by and like shaking his finger and just begrudging and hating them for all of this terrible sin that he's seeing culture just going to pot in or something like that. No, next week we'll see him say that he was even worse off than any one of the people that he's just described. But in giving extreme examples of every kind of lawbreaker, Paul is saying that the gospel of Christ is for everyone. That the reality that we sang earlier can be comforting, that all of our ways are known to God, that he sees, he cares for us, he loves us in any circumstance. But as Matt said, that this reality can and should also be terrifying at the same time. That for those who are not united by faith in the cross of Christ, that all my ways are known to you, that can be a horrifying reality. That God not only sees every action of mine, but knows every thought. The worst of the worst, and then everything in between. And so the law comes for every kind of lawbreaker so that every human might come to agree with Paul in Romans 7 where he says in the New Living Translation, he says, I felt fine when I did not understand what the law commanded. But when I learned the truth, I realized I had broken the law and was a sinner doomed to die. Perhaps Paul is naming specific instances and examples that he knows of in Ephesus. Maybe Timothy knows of people who are like punching their mother and father. Perhaps selling people into slavery. Perhaps these were cultural epidemics that he's confronting specifically. Either way, the law ought to come to all of us as a mirror. We've perhaps been walking around thinking that we were like this beautiful and respectable person. Someone who is worthy for all of culture to emulate. And then the holiness of God. The purity of his character. The comprehensiveness of his love. gets thrown up in front of us. And then our worst nightmares are shown to be reality. Like all of the worst nightmares that we all have, that we didn't wear clothes to school or work today, or our teeth are falling out or something. That is reality when we are confronted with the holiness of God. That we see ourselves not as wonderfully amazing as we thought we were, but we see ourselves for who we are. Lawless and disobedient, ungodly and sinners unholy and profane, left to ourselves, every single one of us, categorically, and without the mirror, unable to see it. Now, I think we need a moment here on a couple of things on this list that undoubtedly made a few of us cringe. Did Paul really just put people 
who sleep with someone who is not their same-sex spouse in the same category as a murderer and a human trafficker? That sounds crazy. I think most people would agree that the effects of your sex life would be far less immediately damaging to others than if you murdered or if you enslaved them. And perhaps the larger culture would see little to no damage to others in our sex lives as long as there is mutual consent. Or to put it like I've read and heard many folks object, why would the God of the universe care about what I do with my body and with whom? Well, first of all, for me to assume that God doesn't care about my sex life must mean that he doesn't care about any of my life. Marking my sex life as out of bounds seems to be an arbitrary and strange distinction that God can have something to say about other parts of my life, but not about that. And while the hookup culture around us is telling us more and more that sex is spiritually and morally neutral, that it's just biology, I think, I think, if we were actually self-reflective, we would know that that lie is deeply untrue. But it is not spiritually, morally neutral. What seems and feels like joy in our life can perhaps quench our thirst for a moment, but is actually like drinking sand when we are desperately thirsty. And even after reflection, though, we, we still did not know or believe that casual and uncovenanted sex is not God's will for our life. Well, God is good to give us the mirror to show us, as Paul says, that I felt fine when I did not understand what the law commanded. But when I learned the truth that sex outside of a covenanted, lifelong marriage is actually outside of the bounds of what God intends for my life, well, now I found out. Now I realized that I had broken his law, that I'm a sinner, that I'm doomed to die. And so it has been the clear and univocal teaching of, of scripture, of church history, as well as the global church that sex is intended for marriage. One male, one female, or as one second century Greek said about Christians, he observed them and he said, they share a common table but not a common bed. One thing that was markedly distinct about Christians is that they shared everything that they had in common with one another, but not their bodies. Now, as we said when we were in Genesis 2, about a year and a half ago, saying stuff like this 10 years ago wouldn't have been controversial at all, especially coming from a pulpit and preaching about what God says about marriage and our sexuality. But today, what I've just said, what we read Paul say, might sound and perhaps does sound to the culture around us as arrogant, as offensive, and even hateful, especially when talking about our neighbors who are attracted to the same sex. Why would we Christians, the culture might ask, ever seek to deny someone of their full humanity? Why would we Christians ever seek to disparage people who are image bearers of God and perhaps never known a time in which they have been that they've not been attracted to someone of the same sex. Now have Christians, perhaps in great swaths of history, not thought well about sex? Yes. Have Christians minimized other sins? And have just, especially in the last many decades of the Western church, just been okay with divorce? Yes. 
Have Christians been insensitive, inconsiderate, often bullies and demeaning to our LGBT neighbors? Yes. And we must do better. We must love indiscriminately and completely put away true bigotry, bullying, name-calling, joke-telling. All humans are image bearers and are worthy of dignity and respect. But do all of those realities change the fact that God has revealed himself? That God has revealed his will for the world? Do all of these realities allow us to decide that whatever we want must be true? No. The world tells you today to be true to yourself. That what you feel about yourself is your true self. And to deny that true self is a form of self-hatred. So if you are attracted to people of the same sex, this is a created good. And it must be fostered, it must be cultivated, it must be acted upon. And to do otherwise and to repress such desire is actually hateful to yourself. So the world blames a traditional and supposedly intolerant culture for teenage suicide and depression because of a forced and repressed sexuality. But Sam Albury, himself a Christian man who was attracted to the same sex, but for the sake of Christ remains abstinent, says that the problem isn't with the church or the problem isn't with the Bible. No, the problem, he says, is a culture that says your entire identity and sense of who you are is bound up with fulfilling your sexual desires. You, he says, the world are the ones who have raised the stakes that high so that the moment you don't fulfill your desires, you have nothing left to live for. You are so much more than your sexual desire. You are so much more than your emotions and your feelings. To say otherwise is just an extremely low anthropology. To say that you are nothing more than who you want to sleep with is an incredibly low view of your humanness. You are a human being created in the image of God. Who you are attracted to does not define you as a human being or form the core of your identity. And this is especially true if you are a Christian. Your core identity is that of a son or daughter of God, the same as any other Christian. Do your sexual desires experience the effects of the fall and the effects of sin? Yes. But so does mine. If we can begin to redefine what a straight sexuality is, the way in which God has first created it, that of exclusive and monogamous and selfless covenant relationship with the opposite sex, there is a sense in which none of us are that. I'm not saying that all of us have some repressed same-sex attraction, but that none of us have sexual desires that are fully straight, that are fully hitting the mark for which God has intended it to be. Can any of us say that we have never had a selfless sexual desire reserved only for your spouse, that you have completely and selflessly uh, loved just your spouse in your sexual desire? No, not one of us. Of course not. So the gospel is meant for all people to redeem all kinds of broken sexual sinners, all of us, into the way that God has created us for our joy, for our flourishing. 
Now, since our church has grown quite a bit numerically since the last time this issue has come up and we've talked about something like this, I would love for Christ Church to be the most loving, the most welcoming church in Albuquerque. Where people are not judged are not are, and are cared for in their humanity. And then in gracious kindness, the gospel begins to do its work. It begins to do its work in all of us. So with that in mind, there are undoubtedly several, perhaps many of you for, for whom this is a very close reality. And you've perhaps never felt comfortable or safe to talk about these things with other Christians. Please don't be afraid any longer. For some, this might mean a difficult road ahead. I don't want to minimize that, but there is already a group of folks in our church who have historically been attracted to members of the same sex who have met together in group context to talk and to share and to pray. If this is something that you'd like to explore and meet with others to talk about, would you please just email us? Come talk to us, Nathan at ChristChurchAVQ.com or Clint at the same domain or pastors at the same domain. We'd just love to not only hear your story but connect you with others and encourage you to walk towards Christ. To teach otherwise, to affirm otherwise, goes against the doctrine of the Bible and is actually what feels like an affirmation of love is actually the most hateful thing that a church or a person can say to someone who is attracted to the same sex. To say, live into that, continue disobeying God, and walk in disobedience. The most hateful thing that can be possibly said. And so we want to hear your story, identify with you as a fellow broken sexual sinner, and walk towards Jesus together. Now for many of us, we might have heard Crystal initially read that list of sins in 1 Timothy 1 and think, woo! I'm glad I'm not that. I've never perjured myself under oath. I've never gotten into human trafficking. I've never punched my father and mother. Well, the problem is that we've defined sin in its more obvious forms, forms of which we are not guilty, and then thus we can become blind to forms of sin that are less obvious in our own lives. But do you see how Paul wraps up this list? He says, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. That leaves a pretty big umbrella. That's a wide category in which all of us fit. Whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, which as we saw two weeks ago, can slowly and silently infiltrate tons of areas in our lives. And thinking that God has given us our lives for comfort or for isolation, that God exists to give us whatever our heart wants and that if he doesn't, that he or something else is wrong. And even thinking that the goal of having sound doctrine is for sound doctrine and not for love. One pastor says, if a young man loves to read and discuss theology but can't get up a little early to give an elderly person a ride to church, I'm not sure that he's a Christian. I'm not saying that he isn't a Christian. I'm, not, I'm just not sure what he thinks it means to follow Jesus. Right? We don't have to wake up early here to go give others rides. But the law comes to confront and expose all of us. 
The Bible isn't given to us. Jesus did not come to die so that we might merely study theology and have sound doctrine, but that it does something in us that prompts us to greater love. Love of God, love of neighbor. Passion for God, compassion for neighbor. But the law does come to make the burden heavier. To show that the effort on our part of self-righteousness, of living a life that we think might be morally acceptable, the confrontation of the law comes to crush us in our prideful autonomy. All of us in extreme forms of law-breaking to minute and tiny forms. The law comes to crush us. So what's the law for? To show us our need for Christ, to expose us, to condemn us. Who is the law for? Everyone. And now finally, what is the gospel for? The law is given for all kinds of sinners. And then in verse 11, Paul says, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Would you like to see the glory of God? Everyone, would you like to see the glory of God? Look to the cross. It's unbelievable. The gospel and the cross of Christ can do what the law could never do in making sinners right before God. In giving life where there was only death, to take the weight of sin, of failure, of unmet expectations, of shame, and to place that unbearable weight onto Jesus who can bear it. That he might say, it is finished. I will take the weight. You are free. And so the command of Christ is not all right, everyone, become something. Start acting like you're a Christian and maybe someday I'll accept you. No, the command of Christ is to behold, to look to the cross and see the self-giving love of God, to see his character, to see his moral purity and to see his love for you. That however deep our sin, however false our worship, however strong our fear and rebellion may go, the mercy of Christ can reach deeper. And so that's why whenever we think about the law, God's moral expectations, either in our own lives or in the lives of others, it ought not to come from loathing or self-righteousness not from disappointment or hatred, like I'm thinking about how all the ways that I failed God this week and now I'm just spiraling into a self-loathing, but I ought to think about the law and the ways in which I have failed God this week as a stepping stone to the gospel. This is why we so quickly move from our confession of sin each week into the assurance of pardon, that we should dwell and think on these things, but then we ought to know that Jesus has taken the weight and he's carrying it for us. Whenever we think or talk about the law, we must not center our attention there. Our thinking about the law and sin must get us to the glory of God who has redeemed and forgiven sinners, adopted them into his family. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. Praise 
the Lord. I can't wait to get to this next paragraph, verses 12 through 17. In many ways, the only reason that Paul has started reflecting on the law here is so that he can just blow up in praise for who God is, for what God has done, so that he can consider Jesus to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. But we'll get there. We'll get there next week. But consider Jesus tonight. For the first time, for the millionth time, look full in his wonderful face. He longs to carry the weight of your sin and your weakness and your shame. No matter what part of life, anywhere in between, as Robert Murray McShane said long ago, for every one look to the self, take ten looks to Jesus. Let's think about our sin this week. But for every time you do that, take ten more looks to the glory of Christ of his death on your behalf and of his resurrected life that he has now shared with you in faith. Let's look to him now. And Father, we are thankful that you have given your law to us. That it comes to not only show us your character, your expectations for humanity, but it comes in love to crush us Left to ourselves, it would be a feeble and futile attempt to walk this life on our own, to work our way into your acceptance. It's impossible. We are too self-worshipping, too self-loving, too others-hating, too God-hating. And so it is good of you to put this weight on our shoulders. Father, we pray, perhaps for someone sitting here tonight, that you might crush them under the weight of unmet expectation. They might reflect on their life and see how they have not lived a life worthy of love. But just as so many of us in, the, in this room have experienced, that this person might feel the weight of sin and give it to Jesus. Might look at him in his life and death and resurrection and might hear him say, it is finished. That they might for the first time say, if ever I love thee, my Jesus, it is now. Thank you for wearing the thorns on your brow. Thank you for giving me a crown to wear on my brow one day. Father, we are thankful for this letter. We pray that you would continue to shape and fashion us into the likeness of your glory. And we pray these things for Jesus, for his sake, and for our own joy. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.